regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where you'll long for an in-depth conversation with data and ML practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Curtis Duffett, an American computer scientist and entrepreneur focusing on AI to empower people. He is the CEO and co-founder of TinLab, building the next generation data-centric AI and open source technologies that enable AI to work with real-world messy data. He completed his PhD at MIT, where he invented confident learning to automatically file label issues in any dataset. For his work, Curtis received the MIT thesis award, NSF fellowship, and Goldwater scholarship. Before CleanLab, he worked in AI research team at Google, Oculus, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and NASA. So, Curtis, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the show. Yep. Thanks for the intro. Happy to be here. Fabulous. By way of introduction, I did some research on your profile before with Cole, and I believe that you grew up below the poverty line in rural Kentucky in a household mainly blue-collar workers. Throughout your teenage years, you found the ladder of education, which culminated in research opportunities on neurobiology at the University of Kentucky and aerospace engineering at NASA Langley Research Center. Can you share a bit about your modest bringing in Kentucky, your gift of education, and your research experience during high school? Yeah, just to reiterate, so I grew up outside of Lexington, Kentucky. And I grew up in the country. There was, I had one neighbor and yeah, after some time and a lot of work ended up where I am today. In terms of being in a household of blue collar workers, I should be super clear. So my dad was a mailman and his dad was a mailman. His dad was a mailman. So if I'd been a mailman, I'd be a fourth generation mailman. My mom, when I was young, she didn't work. That was very natural and normal then. And so that's a privilege, right? To have your mom not have to work. What ended up putting us below the poverty line and leading to a lot of hardship was issues, just family issues, things that I won't get into in a public podcast that led to a lot of dishonest spending and stuff like that. And so then my mom started to have to work because of some bad decisions. And then things got really bad. We were shopping at Save A Lot. And uh, if everyone's anyone's been to Save A Lot, it's a pretty low quality. You might, the fish, if they even have fish, it's mostly going to be like chicken, but might be spoiled or something. <laughs> Not a good ad for Save A Lot. But yeah, pretty budget entry-level type food. And that's what I grew up on. Sometimes we did not have food, which is, I feel like a lot of people say that. I have a pretty good idea of what that actually means. So you might just have a piece of, we would get those cheese packets from Kroger and there would be 
these squares of cheese and you would just keep folding them. If you ever had a slice of cheese, I would just eat them where you would just fold over like uh, a slice of cheese, like that would be on a hamburger. And then if you fold it in half, it breaks in half. And then you can fold it in half again and it breaks in half again. So you can actually turn one slice of cheese into 16 bites of cheese. And that was like a good way to just eat and feel happy as a kid. But yeah, I was a kid, so I didn't know any better. I thought this is how everybody lived. And yeah, that's how I grew up. And then you were asking about the ladder of education and how did I end up in research? So the way I felt growing up was I felt strangled. I felt like I wanted to do so much and I had no way I could do it. I wanted to write books. I felt frustrated. I felt like life was a frustrating experience. I felt like I had so much to give and so much I wanted to do, and I just didn't know how to do it from where I came from. And I've got a great dad. He's like very supportive. I've got two great sisters and a mom who loves me. And so I had the support that you might want, but just no resources. And then there were a lot of issues, family issues that are private. And so I didn't have a situation where I could just ask someone, how do you get into MIT or how do you go to a top school? What I did notice, though, is that I was pretty good at school. And I noticed that when I worked hard at things, I could get good grades and feel good about myself. Eventually, what I ended up doing is getting a scholarship at my school for $500. The tiniest, little, smallest, it was called the cafeteria scholarship. All I had to do was write about the food. And it was so lame But the thing was, nobody else applied for it because it was so lame that nobody wanted to apply for it. But I did. I applied for it and I got it. I used that then to apply for something called the Governor Scholars Program. And I got into that. And I used that to apply for a bunch of applications for college. And I got in, eventually I went to Vanderbilt, which was like a top 20 school in the US. And it's near home, not too far from Kentucky still in the South, a very different culture than where I live today in San Francisco or where I spent the last 10 years at MIT. But I went to Vanderbilt and I just kept doing the same thing. I, I used the previous experience to get the next experience, worked at General Electric, worked at UK. So I'll stop there before it ends up too long of an answer. But that was how I built it up bit by bit, trying to get into a place where I could finally start contributing to the world and not just being strangled by my background. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing the anecdote of your upbringing as well as how you find the sm- small things that you're able to take advantage of and then use them as a way to go up the, the ladder, getting the scholarship and then up going to these different places. And in terms of growing up in Kentucky, if I'm correctly, you get this talk to your high school a few years ago, right? Yeah, about how you go from rural Kentucky to MIT PhD, and you were saying something along the lines of being in Kentucky reminds you the value of what being a few minutes from green pasture can do for your mental health and intellectual fortitude. To that end, you try to give back to your community, and you even set up a sponsorship for some of the underprivileged Kentucky students to attend MIT later on. Can you talk more about kind of like this is the state of Kentucky and how it motivated you to giving back to your community? Yeah, I think that a lot of folks who are not from the big cities where all the resources are, some of them have the most ability. My my point is, if you're listening to this podcast, 
and you are not from a wonderful place that has the best resources, and both of your parents are not doctors or lawyers or professors or CEOs, you're not from the middle of San Francisco or the middle of New York, you might feel like you don't have a, a chance. But I argue that you're actually, you may be in a position of greater strength. And the reason for that is because you can focus. You don't have a million opportunities constantly bombarding you. You're not distracted. You don't have the same impact of society and TikTok and media and advertising, commercialism constantly bombarding you every day. I grew up in rural Kentucky. There was nothing. There was grass, yeah. grass and trees. I had time to think about who I am, about what I want to do in this world, about whether I'm a good person, about whether I'm a moral person. Does God exist? I was in a Christian home. Do I believe in that? Do I think it's a, a good thing or, or not a good thing? What are my views on politics? What are my views on society? I had time to think. And I didn't have people telling me what to think. I didn't, at that time, the internet was still in its infancy. I'm 31. I grew up in the 90s, early 2000s. The internet was in its infancy. We didn't have an internet connection until I was like 11 or, 12, or 10 or so. So when you're in a, a situation like that, it's incredible what you can realize about yourself without being inundated by TikTok telling you what you need to realize about yourself, but actually just having the freedom to think on your own. So my point is, if you're growing, and nowadays everybody has TikTok, everyone has whatever the latest new app is. So, so that's not still true. But what is true is you have less commercialism, marketing, and information being bombarded at you. And I say that's your superpower. I think that you can use that to your advantage, figure out what you want. And you, when you have an opportunity come your way, there's only going to be one or two because you don't grow up in a place that has a lot of opportunity. So that's good for you. You know now what to focus on. That's the opportunity you focus on. That's the opportunity you seize. And I think when you view the world from that perspective, you'll realize that what you think is holding you back is actually your strength. Yeah. And to the point, I believe that you recently wrote a tweet about how you observe misinformation on this social media platform and how that really spread misinformation to, to your end and how it's really even harder to cultivate independent thought. I'm just curious, like, how do you see the evolution of social media in the upcoming years and how do you like try to contribute to that movement? Yeah, so the idea of the tweet, so anyone's welcome. I use Twitter more now than I did before. It's growing. It's CG Northcut is my handle. You can just look me up, but I use LinkedIn even more. The, the tweet that I posted was just noticing that I only use Twitter and social media really for business, mm -hmm. for empowerment, for AI, for the things I care about, which is trying to make this world a better place using technology and artificial intelligence. And yet when I look at the recommended for me section in Twitter, it recommends things that are com totally irrelevant. It recommends things about Pamela Anderson's blonde hair and the size of her chest. It recommends things about the latest actress and what she looked like when she did some kind of pose. I support the media and acting genre. I'm a lover of films and media, but that's not why I'm on Twitter. And they know that. They know what I look at. They know I don't look at that stuff. And I don't want to be bombarded with it. I don't want that to be what my mind is filled with. My mind should be filled with the things that I want it to be filled with. And that's how do we empower people? How do we build technology? 
technology to help people. I run Clean Lab. I want to make Clean Lab the best company I can for our customers. I want information that helps me achieve. That's my goal. And Twitter knows that. They know that's what I'm looking at. So why are they recommending things like Pop Sugar's latest ad or whoever the new fad is or whatever? And the reason is because it makes them money. And that's a problem. That's actually misinformation. They have information to recommend better things to me that are healthier for me and empower me. And they choose not to do that. It's a company thing. And the thing is, I don't think that they're unique in this. I think that pretty much every social media giant is going to be driven by click-through rate and ad revenue. And it's a problem for society because we're being inundated by basically just misinformation. We're being inundated on what makes big businesses and organizations and the media money, not what necessarily makes us better people or able to contribute more to society. So how do we fix that is a very hard question because it's an endemic and systemic problem. But we can do a little bit of things. And if you think about, we haven't chatted about what Clean Lab does, but my company literally fixes misinformation. It fixes errors in data sets. It fixes label errors. It fixes any issue that you have. And if you think of data, what is it? Data is information. I've spent a PhD at MIT and built a company with two fantastic co-founders to be able to solve the problem of can we actually fix information and fix data that has errors in it. Um, there's not always a true answer, by the way. So it's a very challenging problem. But the goal is to actually have the information that goes to machine learning models and also to people be as accurate as possible so that we don't create a bunch of biases and create a new world where it's not a world that we want, but it's a world that makes money for big companies. That's not the world we want to create. Yeah, thanks for going over that catharsis aspect. And we have a touch on Clean Lab later on in your chat, uh, talking about some of the technologies and the, the mission of the company. But let's go back into your career and starting with the education. So you mentioned a little bit earlier, you got your bachelor in computer science and mathematics from Vanderbilt in the early 2010, and you actually were valedictorian and you were also a part of this medalist for the School of Engineering. During your undergrad, you, you devote yourself to improving the community as a math guest lecturer, engineering school student mentor, and top beta pi president. Could you mind going over your overall academic experience at Vanderbilt? Yeah, you bet. The Founders Medalist and Valedictorian are the same thing at Vanderbilt. That's just the medal they give you based on ranking. And yeah, experience at Vanderbilt. When I got there, I wanted to be a patent lawyer because that's what Einstein did. And I'm a big fan of Einstein. I consider him a human with superpowers. I think all humans have superpowers, actually. It's just, it takes time for us to figure out what they are. A lot of people don't like that terminology, by the way. They think that's fantasized. But I completely disagree that's fantasized. I think it's exactly what it is. And I think part of your undergrad experience, I went to Vanderbilt for undergrad, but part of anyone's undergrad experience is actually figuring out what are your superpowers. And when I say superpowers, I don't mean shooting lightning out of your eyeballs. Your superpower is what you can do that you notice that other people aren't able to do as easily. There are certain things that we all can do that we're just a little bit better at than other people. And if you can harness that energy to create something incredible, you have discovered like sort of part of your purpose on earth. And I think that's really helpful. I think a lot of people struggle, especially in modern society, to know what their purpose is. You get your job, your standard 
you know, tech job or whatever after college. And then you work at a big company. And after four years, you're like, wait, what am I doing with my life? And you have these crises where you just don't know what you're doing with your life. And I think if we used college to figure out what is our superpower, what are the things that we're just genuinely like really good at and we really enjoy, um, I think that the world might be a place that had a little more certainty and a little more confidence in terms of what we do. And it's hard because there's a lot of opportunity. For me personally, I spent Vanderbilt trying to figure out what my superpower was. I knew I cared a lot about education because education was what was able to get me from rural Kentucky to where I am today and to where I was at that time. And I also knew I liked math and science because I thought it was useful. And I felt like that's what the world is built on top of. And at the time, I wasn't very interested in business, actually, because my family, my dad was a mailman. I didn't grow up in a home that had any business. The notion of business was like this thing of like rich versus poor. I grew up in a home that had very little money. We always thought of when I was growing up that people in business were money focused. That's completely wrong. People in business are trying to create value for customers and they're have to make money to do that. Some people in business want to make money and that's their goal. Totally fine. That's everyone has their right and to the pursuit of liberty, happiness, and freedom. And if that implies that they want to make money, then they should absolutely do that. I want to make money. I think lots of people want to make money, but I have other goals, bigger goals, and they have, they're with society and I can't achieve those goals without business. I emphasize that now because you asked me what my academic experience is like at Vanderbilt, and it had nothing to do with business at the time because I did not see just how necessary it was to achieve a greater vision for the public good. Mm -hmm. So the overall experience for me was figure out what you like, which I, like I said, I started out patent law. I ended up trying every major class in engineering. So I took civil engineering. I took electrical engineering, their 101 class. So I took like statics in civil engineering statical mechanics. I took thermodynamics for mechanical engineering. I took um, a biomedical engineering 101 class. I took an electrical engineering. I took circuits one, circuits two. I took a digital logic class for like computer engineering. I just took every single engineering. I took chemistry, physics, biology, every single science and math class. I did not focus at all. I went broad, as broad as I possibly could. And I studied all of them. And frankly, I did okay in all of them. And once I started to realize that I could do any of them, I didn't wanted to pick the one that felt the most natural to me. Um, and I felt like I barely scraped by, frankly, on some of the classes. They didn't come very naturally to me. But I took a computer science class and it came. It was just like the easiest thing I, I had ever done and in math and science. And I loved it. So I was like, hang on a minute. This is easy for me and I love it. It feels very natural. It's how my mind works and it's fascinating. And I realized also that with computer science, I could create any other company in any other field, right? There is no field that's not touched by computer science. Like, like if you're in the legal system, you can create programs that can search law books and support lawyers or even automate some processes in litigation. Some of our customers at CleanLab are litigation companies. We, some of our customers in Clean Lab are healthcare companies, so you can support medicine and doctor and biology. Some of our customers are physics research groups. So I, I realized that with computer science, you can support any field. And so it kept my ability to be general and also do the things that I felt were superpowers for me. And I also felt like computer science is one of the most human facing fields, which a lot of people think is crazy, right? Because it's like, it's supposed to be like not human. 
But I would argue that actually computer science is one of the most human facing fields because what we're doing and with computer science is we're building beings that can compute, which is a naturally human intelligent task. And you're built, you're creating these things that you can interact with that do human tasks of computation for you. And so it's a, you're building something that is meant to work with humanity and it's meant to be human facing. And I think people forget that. I think it seems like sci-fi robot, whatever, but everything you're building in computer science is to do computation. And that computation is for a human driven task, a human driven goal. So I love humanity. I want to do as much good for humanity as possible. And so at the end of the day, the summary of my time at Vanderbilt was I figured out what I want to do and how to help the people I care about and what I was good at. And then I put all those together into my degree and I use that to figure out what the next steps of my life were. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, that whole journey. It sounds like you, you, you went broad and you found things that come natural and seamless to you and then you stick with it, which is mathematics and computer science. Sorry to interrupt, but there's one other thing I should add. I, I tend to get very focused on goals and what we can do and trying to build things and trying to make things. But I left out something really important, which is that also in undergrad, you meet some really special people. And some of the people I met influenced me, especially faculty. Mm -hmm. I met some really interesting faculty. I'd say a lot of the best friends I made at MIT and grad school but I made a few really great friends at Vanderbilt who inspired me. I saw people push themselves and I started to see that there's really no limitations to what humans can do. And then when I went to MIT, that reified that much further. But I just want to emphasize that another great part of the academic experience, especially undergrad, is to try to meet people that are unlike people you've ever met before, really differentiators who change, change your mind and they stretch your mind about what is capable for a human being? Be grateful when you meet someone like that and try to meet as many people like that as you can. And undergrad is a really great place to do that. It, it does sound like you got involved a lot with these different organizations, student activities like Tau Beta Pi, VU Engineering, et cetera, and you even a, a TA for these classes, right? Yeah. I'm just curious, how does, you know, teaching and men benefit your career later on as a, oh my God. As a father <laughs> so, of such a, yeah. That's so easy. That's an easy answer. There are many ways to learn. You can learn by writing books. You can learn by talking. You can learn by listening. You can learn by mimicking like a monkey. You can monkey see, monkey do. You can learn by watching videos. You can learn by replaying and interacting with audio clips. The way I learn best is by teaching. So mentorship, when I was president of Tau Beta Pi, I was teaching basically like how do we build a society of people focused on building good things for society and doing good engineering that helps the world. But when I teach something, it reifies my understanding of it. And it's really how I learn. So I enjoy doing this podcast, for example, because as I'm talking to you, I'm also reifying my own thinking and I'm having internal discovery as I share things in ways I've never shared them before. And so, yeah, I think anyone who's advising or teaching will find that they, whatever it is that they're advising or teaching on, they become an even deeper expert on before than they were when they were just learning it for themselves. That's a huge benefit for me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for crystallizing on the importance of teaching. Um, so besides academic, you also 
have a tons of research and industry experience during Yanagra. More specifically, you do research in wireless networking at Notre Dame, education data mining at your current institution, Vanderbilt, and even still doing cybersecurity at MIT Lincoln Lab. You also work as an intern doing engineering at GE and technical program management at Microsoft. So at a very high level, can you quickly walk through this research industry experience? Yeah, one of the things I was terrified about in undergrad, <laughs> just absolutely terrified about, was <laughs> not being able to actually apply anything I was learning to the real world. I was so scared about that. You go to class and you learn some new equation, like you learn Riemann. I thought Newton's method was fantastic. There's a lot of really fascinating theory that you learn. I took a number theory class. I took a, a really cool algebra class, which was basically modern algebra, which is uh, focused on how do you build new algebras, not just the classic algebra. Anyway, all of the shit I started to wonder, like, is this actually going to help people? And so part of the one thing I emphasized and made sure I did every summer that I was an undergrad was to go work somewhere with a company that actually does stuff with people or work in an academic research lab that is focused on some project that is for people. Because at the end of the day, if I do a bunch of contributions to a theoretical side, then maybe they get used by things that help people, but maybe they don't. And I want to control for that. I want to make sure they do. So anyway, I went to General Electric after my first year, and that wasn't even intentional. Like I came from rural Kentucky. I had one experience under my belt, which was NASA. That was really cool. I was lucky to get into that at the time, given my background. It was a good fit. I learned a lot. I worked on some aerodynamics systems and how do we make planes fly with, it was called wind gust mitigation. How do you prevent them from bumping up and down? Learned some stuff, went to General Electric the next summer because that was the only company that would take me because of where I'm from and my background. A lot of people who are not from good places will understand that very well. It didn't matter how hard I wanted to work or how smart I was. All that mattered is my background. I could feel that in time, every time I applied anywhere. But General Electric gave me a spot. They were the only ones. I applied to like 50 internships. And they gave me a spot and I went there and I built their engineering like platform to support all their onboarding of engineers. I didn't want to do that job, but, but that was a job they had and it gave me experience. And I saw how things work at General Electric, which is a really big company, slow moving, but big. I just used that experience to understand the business and understand operations there. Then I used that experience to do the next experience, which was to work for the NSF in an REU experience at Notre Dame, where I built something called photoplethysmography. And it's really badass. It's basically, you take a camera, you look at a person's face, and with just a camera, this isn't early days, right? We're talking like 2011. I would take a cell phone camera and put it on your face. There's nothing like literally just like I'm holding it in front of you, like three feet away, like to take a picture and it can read your heart rate. And it sounds like magic. But what we were actually doing was we were looking at blood flushing into the face, which is how photoplethysmography works. And you can do this. It actually works. You can pick up in the RGB spectrum on just a regular camera, the flushing of blood into the cells of the face. A human eye cannot pick it up, but the fine grained elements of a camera can with a lot of digital signal processing, emphasizing movements and changes. And so that's what we did. And we were able to detect heart rate. And that was really cool. So that was just a useful thing. The next summer, I then used those two experiences. I ended up winning a competition at Vanderbilt. I did a 
lot of random competitions for coding. I ended up winning one, not because I was the best or any of this nonsense. I really was just getting started with computer science. But I had some really good people on my team, a good guy named Austin, who basically led the team and we ended up winning as a team and we did really well together. After we did well, I got reached out to by Microsoft. I wanted to work there for a summer. And of course I said, yes, I'm still building my career at this time because where I come from and I don't have any sort of resources to support me other than what I've done in the past. And I ended up going to Microsoft and that was a big change for me. I'd never been at a big tech company at that time. I didn't know what to expect. I, nobody had ever talked to me about working in a place like that. Again, my dad is a mailman, so I just don't have any background. I went there and it, it was a pretty big experience at that time. I look back now and it feels small, but at that time it was a big experience. I was in Redmond, I was in Seattle. That's a big deal for a kid from Kentucky. Very different world. And I started biking. I started hiking. I did a bunch of stuff I had never done before and it changed my life. I felt autonomy. I felt powerful. I felt empowerment. I, would, I wish I could have bottled that in a bottle and give that to every kid in the world, frankly. It went well. I was given an offer. I declined their offer to pursue a PhD. I started applying for PhDs. Wasn't sure if I'd get in anywhere because I, I didn't know, but I applied to lots of places like CMU, Georgia Tech, MIT, basically all the top CS schools. And lo and behold, I was accepted to all of them, which I did not expect. Nobody told me that would happen. I didn't have any sort of notion, but I asked everyone I could, how do you write the best application? I talked to my scholarships department at Vanderbilt. I asked them, how do I make my best application? And I basically spent every day of my undergrad trying to get into the best grad school I could. Fun fact, a lot of people are, it's not a fact, it's a social thing, but a lot of people say in college, you get to choose two of the three S's. One is social, <laughs> one is sleep, and one is study. And yeah. people would always tell me that I, I chose study twice. <laughs> I think that's funny, but I didn't mean to. I just had really specific goals and I, where I came from and what I needed to get done in life required me to behave a certain way. And I would love, by the way, I would love to just shoot the shit and hang out with people. I would love to do that. Of course, that would be so fun. But that, I don't feel like that's what I'm here to do on this planet. I want to try to contribute. I want to try to make this world a better place. And that means I need to work and I need to work hard and it's uncomfortable, but I like being uncomfortable because that's how I grow. And I, I recommend to anyone who wants to grow to be as uncomfortable as you can all the time because you will always get stronger by doing that. Anyway, after Microsoft, I started applying to the NSF scholarship, to every scholarship I could because faculty, I asked faculty what to do. They said that was the best way to get into a good grad school. And I ended up getting the NSF fellowship using, again, I used previous scholarships that I also had, had been building up along the way. So I got the Goldwater Scholarship before, which I applied for using my previous scholarships, just constantly building it up, building it up. And then I used that to get the NSF. And then I used the NSF scholarship to when I applied to PhD programs. I have ended up getting into MIT and then accepting MIT. At the same time, I was also applying for internships also for the summer before grad school. So I know a lot of students take off, but Vanderbilt is a great school. It's top 20, but it's not top for a computer science. Yeah. So I knew wherever I was going to go that it was going to be hard. And so I wanted to do something that would help me learn as much as I could before I went to grad school. And so I, I worked at MIT Lincoln Lab. 
I was accepted for internship there. And I ended up going to MIT twice, basically once for internship and then again for grad school because I was trying to go there. So I attacked it from both directions and I didn't expect to get in both, but that's how it worked out. So I ended up doing an internship there before I even started as a grad student. And that was pretty much how everything went. Yeah. Thanks for touching on how did you come about choosing the blank for jobs and doing research and get hands-on industry experiment. The importance of that experiment with Microsoft up in Seattle, how does that open you up to a new world like working with big tech company? I want to double-click on your part about choosing MIT for your PhD versus the job offer with Microsoft. And if I'm correct, I think I read this piece from Vanderbilt that the reason you do that is because you want to work towards building foundation in the field of computer science and help improve education through computer science. And that's the main reason why you go to the academic route versus working in a big company, for instance. So can you walk through that process again about how you about to not being learned by a lucrative job security and make the decision yeah, to go totally. to the foundation route? Yeah. And also, additionally, just one point from Carolina, my question is, you eventually at MIT, you got advised by Professor Isaac Schwab, which is the inventor of the first working quantum computer. Yeah. If you can recall, talk about like how do you end up finding your advisor that could be useful as well. Yeah, for sure. So the first point, uh, how did I choose to go to MIT instead of going to Microsoft in undergrad? I had a really interesting conversation with like my hiring manager from that internship. And at the time, Microsoft was like a big deal for me because I was where I'm from. And so they ended up telling me, look, they were like, if you work at Microsoft, we're going to pay you like basically around 150K a year, whatever it was back then. And we're going to, and you're, if you go to a PhD, it's going to be six years. So 150K times six years, that's nine, that's almost a million dollars that you're going to miss out on and you'll get raises. So it's probably more than a million dollars. So are you really just going to think about the opportunity cost is what they kept saying. And they, and they had some very interesting negotiation tactics. What I realized is that if I go get a PhD, I can always go back to Microsoft. If I go get a PhD from MIT, you think I'm not going to be able to go do whatever job they wanted me to do as an intern from undergrad at Microsoft? <laughs> of course I can. <laughs> like, that's nonsense. I'll just be more educated and more capable in doing that job. But the reality is I'll also be able to do a lot of other jobs too. And I'll likely, and that means that it's more likely I'll be able to do something I'm interested in and that I really care about and that I can basically do a really good job at. And that was my thinking at the time. Another thing is that in computer science, especially, you can totally do internships. You can actually make some money while you're doing grad school. And I think that's something that they did not take into account. You can actually make quite a bit. You can also start companies, you can have blogs, you can have websites. There's all sorts of stuff you can do if you want, if it's about money for you. It wasn't about money for me. It was about creating the ability to have upward movement and upward mobility and also horizontal mobility and to surround myself with people who would enrich me for the rest of my life. If I went to Microsoft, I'm sure I would meet fantastic people. They have great people there but I would not meet the type of people that I got to meet doing a PhD at MIT. The t people I spent time with changed my life permanently. One thing that is a problem, and 
this is going to seem like it's off topic, but it's not. It's actually very much something to consider. If you search right now on Google, so all of my main sort of role models are male. Mm-hmm. And that's always bothered me. And so I always have wanted to have a female role model. I just think it's healthy. And so if you type online, the what are the best female role models? The results that are returned are mostly like actresses and people who are in sort of civil rights. Yeah. And at first it seems like, what am I talking about? Why is this relevant? But the reason that it's relevant is because when you're getting these these type of uh, sort of advisors or mentors, you don't realize that if you're, say you're a little girl, you're like five years old and you're searching Google for like, who should my role model be? You're going to think that your appearance is more important than your brains or that fighting for emotional and social movements is more important than fighting for like intellectual strength and discourse. My point being, there's not enough physicists and chemists and biologists, women role models and mathematicians. But when I was at MIT, there were plenty. So yeah. I, I spent 10 years surrounded by some of the most incredible and people in general, but also women, like really incredible, like Regina Barzilay at MIT. Wow. She's like building NLP systems to solve cancer. Like no one would meet her and think she's not a badass. Dina Katabi builds incredible cybersecurity systems. Daniela Roos is like runs CSAIL, like super badass. Tamara Broderick, these faculty at MIT redefine what young women would think that they can do in the world. I want to be in a place like that. I want to be in a place that's surrounded by world leaders and people who redefine genres. So it's easy. Mm-hmm. MIT versus Microsoft is just no comparison. And the amount of, if we're going to talk numbers and dollars of cents, the amount of wealth that you can generate once you have understood how the world really works and understood how to really build incredible things is uncomparable. It is literally incomparable to then compared to working at a PM at Microsoft. There is no comparison. But yeah, in the beginning, you're going to take a pay cut and you're going to lose some money. But the long term, in terms of what you'll be worth in 30 years, there's no comparison. And even if it's not in dollar and cents, the value that you'll have and the confidence in yourself. And it's not even about the confidence. It's actually the ability. I would say in many ways, going to a place like MIT is going to lower your confidence, not increase it. But your abilities will be incomparable to working like a job as and you're also going to work a lot more too and you're going to work for yourself it's just a totally different thing you asked another question right about ike chuang yeah your advisor how did you come about being advised by him oh yeah so ike at the time was interested in online education and he also invented the first working quantum computer so you have this really interesting guy at mit who like built the quantum computer but also is like a professor of physics and computer science and also really cares about online education. At the time, I wanted to do my PhD in the intersection of education because I wanted to empower people and help people learn. And I also wanted to do really badass machine learning and AI stuff. I wanted to use AI and ML to improve education. And he was basically the right person to go to. He's also, interestingly, from Kentucky. But it turned out I'm... In my mind and in my heart, I'm a scientist in many ways in the sense that I, what, the way I view the world is to ask questions. I think things are so interesting, you know, like when we see something, we should ask questions about why it is the way it is. Can it be better? If you go through life and you 
just observe things, but you never ask questions. It's hard to learn anything without being told. But if you're always asking questions, you'll find that you often can come up with the answers to those questions yourself and you'll learn entirely on your own. And you can just get smarter and smarter without having someone to teach you, which is a cool thing. Anyway, Ike really fostered that scientific mindset in me much more than anyone had before. And it was very natural for me. And in that way, we were a really good fit working together. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that reasoning. So continuing on the thread upon education, I believe that early on MIT, you invented the Cameo detection algorithms to detect multiple cow shooting in massive open online courses. So can you kind of provide an overview of your motivation on this work, the promise statement as well as the proposed solution? Yeah. So the problem with online courses, when they first came out, and even now, but now we have the cheating detection system to prevent this. But when they first came out, people were creating two accounts. And on one account, they were copying all the answers. So they're literally just clicking the wrong answer and then clicking show answer, copying the answer that was displayed, opening another browser window, signing in with a different account, pasting the answer and hitting submit. And you could totally do this. And people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were actually doing this to earn certificates. I discovered this because I was a researcher at MIT and Harvard looking into the data. That was my job at the time. When I discovered this, I built a, something called the Cameo de cheating detection algorithm that's used by Harvard and MIT to detect these cheaters and validate certificates. To me, this was paramount. My goal in my PhD in the beginning was to empower people with AI. And to do that, I wanted to democratize education through these online courses like edX and Coursera. If, you, if it turns out that a kid from where I'm from in rural Kentucky or a kid from India or a kid from China or a kid from Singapore or a kid from Malaysia, they can't actually improve their life using an MIT or Harvard certificate because other people have cheated, ruining the worth and the value of that certificate for them, then we have failed in our goal to democratize education. And so I spent the next two, three years validating those certificates with and building an algorithm that could detect if that cheating was occurring so that you wouldn't have a bunch of people who couldn't actually do the work getting jobs based on these certificates. And that way somebody in the future could earn one and have a better life and people actually have some faith and trust that these are reasonable certificates, meaningful in their intention to suggest that person is actually knowledgeable in that field. I see. Was any interesting findings that, that you discover? I was just shocked that tens of thousands of people were cheating. But yeah, cheating is pervasive. It's actually a really serious problem. And it's because when you can give, when you can do very little work and have big promise in your life, that's a big deal. Fundamentally, there were two things that came out of this. One is I realized how much bad data there is in the world in terms of like certificates, they're not actually meaningful. And this is when I first started to realize the implications of misinformation and errors in data on society. The second one is I realized that machine learning and AI had no solution to actually deal with training an ML algorithm on noisy data, which was shocking. So when I was doing this work is like 2015, 2014. And I tried to train an ML algorithm that could predict if someone cheated based on their course history and their course data and their course information, looking at all pairs of accounts. 
And it turned out that you actually, there was no good algorithm for general, just general classification tasks that could train on noisy labels, like basically whether, whether or not they cheated or not, or whether their certificate was valid or not. We didn't have any true labels. We didn't know for sure. To put it very clearly, you never know for sure if someone did not cheat or not. And so if you don't know that for sure, then you don't have true labels. You have noisy labels. And sometimes we had errors in the label. So you try to train an ML model on those, those messy, bad data, and you would get a model that didn't work very well. And so I then spent, I changed my PhD and I started building a field that makes AI actually work for real world noisy data. And that was a pivotal shift for me in terms of what I ended up doing for the next 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's I make a pretty good transition point talking about that change in your PhD research and it focused on data set uncertainty estimation and most specifically you introduce confident learning, which is a family of theories and algorithms for supervised machine learning with label errors. And to that end, you also open source Green Lab. And I think you start working on this library back around the 2015-2016 area and this is a pattern package for learning with noisy labels and putting label errors in data set. Would you mind unpacking the evolution of your research for your PhD career, starting with the ship that, that we just talked about? Yeah, sure. When I started working on Clean Lab, the idea was I wanted to apply it to the education problem. And so I had a discovery that if you try to train an ML model on bad data, you can actually look at the predicted probabilities and you can get ideas of class distributions and different statistics about how confident the probabilities are in each class for a given example. And then based on what the label actually is, you can see if there may be an issue. And I started to expand on that and expand on that. And I was able to build some very strong theoretical guarantees that could show for real world data sets using any model, as long as the model is reasonable, you can actually get exact error finding. And this was shocking that you can just take a data set and you can throw it into using any model that will give you like these, let's say 90% accuracy, and you can find errors in it exactly. And then we found in real world data sets that this doesn't hold, that actually in real world data sets, it will make mistakes because the probabilities are pretty bad. So then we started doing some more work. How do we make this more robust? And I started working on it more, doing more statistics, more class things figuring out when it works, when it doesn't work. And we were able to get to the point where we could, for any model and any data set, give a pretty reasonable guess of what the errors are in the data set. Of course, it makes mistakes. It's not perfect. It would actually be insane, by the way, if someone promised you, and I use the word insane intentionally, not like just using it. It would be insane that someone could say for any data set in the entire world, you can find every error in it perfectly. I would just be like, okay, I'll give you a data set of 7 billion examples with like completely arbitrary errors. And if you could actually find every error exactly, um, then I would question your methodology. If you could promise that you could do that for any data set, no matter what the data set is, there are always going to be data sets that where the labels don't even have anything to do with the, the features. They're like totally random and you'll never expect to do better than the model would do on perfect data either. Just to be very clear. All those things in mind, it was a very hard problem. And what we were able to do was something pretty impressive. We could show that within certain bounds of error on the predicted probabilities, you could exactly get guarantee label error finding. And you could show that it worked very reasonably and very accurately on several real world data sets in every modality. So where this ended up is we now had something that worked for images 
and audio and text and tabular and literally any model that came out, it could work for too, because the way CleanLab works is it takes the labels and the predicted probabilities as input, not the, you know, the model uh, itself. It doesn't use the model or change the loss function or anything like that. Yeah, that's where we were at. People didn't believe that it worked in the beginning. I gave some talks in Australia and Sydney and people literally just told me like, I think this is bullshit. I don't believe it, blah, blah, blah. And I found that very motivating. And so my response to them was to build and create the open source package. And I released it and I said, at that point, six months later, I could go to those people and say, okay, you didn't believe it. That's totally reasonable. It was a pretty impressive thing. In fact, I think if people believe everything that you do the first time, then you might not be doing something that's hard enough. <laughs> yeah. If you build a company and everyone's like, yeah, that seems like a very simple. And of course, that's exactly what I expect it to do. Then anyone could build that. So like when you're building something that people are shocked by, or they find it magical, or they find it hard to believe, then you might be onto something. You might be building something that's not easy to replicate, or it's a challenging problem, or it's interesting. And that's where we were with CleanLab. And so what I did is I open sourced it and I said, okay, to those people, now you can run the algorithm in one line of code. And people started to do it and they started to use it. And I didn't market it. I was in grad school. This isn't a business at the time. I was just in grad school and people started to use this thing and it got picked up and by like random engineers and academics and scientists. And before, I guess before I really was paying attention to it, I was just getting my PhD. We had tens of thousands of people using CleanLab from many of the major tech companies, including Microsoft and Google and Amazon. And I started to realize this is much bigger than a grad project. This has become what will become a company. Absolutely. Thanks for talking about the Terry BI confident learning as well as the motivation BI building the open source package cleaned up. I want to touch on confident learning quickly a bit. You wrote this blog post introducing confident learning a few years ago and I believe that it is based on the principle of supporting noisy data, counting to estimate noise and ranking examples to train confidence. And this field is still relatively new. How do you see the evolution of confident learning as a subfield within the upcoming future? Yeah. The re research perspective talking about that. Yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. It's hard to know how it will evolve. From the academic perspective, you get more accurate citations, uh, but this is a really useful thing. So from the business perspective, lots of people are already trying to build their own things based on confident learning. In the last two years, I've seen about a hundred companies spawn up that none of them are doing, you know, they're not quite that far along or they're not doing fully focused on just being able to fix or correct data because that's what we do at CleanLab. But I've seen all sorts of things about data quality. One interesting thing that you experience founding a company is some of the things that, that I wrote in grad school on the open source repo, so fresh, so clean lab. That was like a phrase I used. I see people copy that all the time and apply it to their own companies. So if you search so fresh, so clean, you'll see that people have just copied that and they just use it for their companies. Another phrase that I would always use for the open source that we use at CleanLab is automatically or just find and fix issues in your ML data. And now if you search that, you'll see many companies have just copied that language. And so there's two answers to your question. One is, yeah, people are using confident learning. The academics who are using it, it's more about the pursuit of knowledge and trying to improve it and grow it. 
And it's being used as a foundational new paradigm, a new way to think about machine learning in terms of the data. And in some ways, this is not my language, but people have told me that they see it as a foundational paper for the new notion of data-centric AI, which is nice. I like that Andrew Ng is supporting data-centric AI and therefore supporting confident learning in the field that we invented at MIT. So I think that's really cool. And then from the business side, I also, I actually, I'm glad to see lots of people using the work. I would prefer they don't copy our language verbatim, but that's part of the startup world. And it's a, it can be an intense world and I don't worry about it too much. The goal is to, the way I think about these things is you want to produce results faster than anyone else to the point of they can keep copying you, but you'll already be moved on to the next thing. You will have already built the next thing. And so it doesn't really matter if someone keeps copying you. They shouldn't, but it doesn't matter too much because you'll already be building the next thing while they're spending all their time in the dust copying what you did previously. Um, but yeah, that's it's, it's different. So that's the business side and the academic side has been pretty good. Yeah, thanks for providing this distinction. And you talk about how Lab got adopted by a lot of organization, big and small, throughout your to time as a PhD student, right? And I believe that during your PhD, you have a variety of internship. And matter of fact, you brought confident learning to the industry by working during totally. this internship. You did some work on comment ranking at Facebook AI and speech recognition on Amazon Research and Google AI. So can you unpack some of this application of confident learning in more detail? Yeah, easy. Yeah. So the question to ask is, how does a kid from rural Kentucky get a company, build a company from their PhD research that gets used by Facebook, Amazon, and Google? How do you do that? And the answer to that question is, and how do you do it when you don't have like a family that has ever done business or any sort of guidance in your life until I got to MIT that even encouraged starting a company. I was, the notion of creating a company was like totally unheard of until I went to MIT. So the way that I was able to do that was I spent 10 years organizing my life to achieve that goal. And so what I did is every summer at MIT, except for one, I did an internship. And so I worked at Facebook, I worked at Amazon, I worked at Google, I worked at Oculus, I worked at Microsoft Research. Each time that I worked somewhere, I would only agree to do the internship if we did something that was related to my PhD research. And I think most grad students would try to do that, depending on the grad student and their interests. So in my case, I focused on things with CleanLab. And so when I went to Facebook, this was the very early days of CleanLab. This was the least related, but it sparked a lot of the business motivation. I ended up, and again, I won't get too into detail because it's what they're doing internally. And so I try not to share too much of the internals, but the high level was Facebook needed to improve their comment rankings. So if you were on like a Donald Trump's page and the top most comment was like, you know, about hurting people or something that was very negative, what we wanted to see is that actually what people want to to upvote. And so what I looked at is I looked at 
is this a noisy upvote? Basically, is the label upvote, downvote incorrect? Is it noisy? And the way that we could estimate that is based on what is the type of stuff that someone normally upvotes? And it turned out that a lot of the people who were upvoting things in like Donald Trump's page, they, if you looked at their signal or the context of what they're writing, they would not normally upvote that. It just happened to be because of a political affiliation or a support of an agenda that they upvoted that. And so what we did is we added some diversification in the rankings where we actually re-ranked them and accounted for semantics such that you wouldn't have a hundred things at the top that were all identical. And you can think of it as a noisy label where you actually want to re-rank things in a way that's based on more accurate labels. And so the result is that now instead of having the top 100 comments all be the exact same comment, which is like something... It could be really positive or negative, but basically we started adding diversification and where you would take a minority's opinion and actually move it up in the comment rankings. So that was one thing. And it showed me like, wow, on literally trillions of labels, Facebook has a problem with noisy labels. After that, I went to Amazon and at Amazon, they had a very similar issue, but for audio, their audio data sets had noise in them specifically for the, like the wake up word for Alexa. Alexa stop. And so for those devices, they were training on models with data and they did not have, they, first of all, they didn't even know if the device doesn't wake up. So does that make sense? Like you have one in your home and you say the word and it doesn't wake up. So the model's broken. They don't know that because it, it doesn't wake up. So it doesn't send information to their servers to let them know that it didn't wake up. So they never have those labels. And so what we had to do is somehow estimate, even without having those labels, what's the error rate? And so we used CleanLab in order to do that. Then I went to Oculus Research, and they needed to build all of the new data sets to build the metaverse. Um, and those are really noisy. So I used CleanLab to make those good and also just focused a lot on data quality. Then I went to Google and literally used CleanLab, and it's m closer to its current version and an actual pilot with them where we built a very simpler version of CleanLab into the internals of Google's open source third-party code base. For anyone who works at Google, it's at Google3 slash third-party slash CleanLab. And we integrated that with their speech team. So if you ever use Google Assistant on your phone, we use CleanLab to clean that data that's trained on. And that's a really hard problem for Google because they had like millions of labeled data that's supposed to be people saying, okay, Google or hey, Google. But actually, they don't know because there's millions of them. A human can't check them. And you have this chicken and egg problem. And so at the end of the day, what we're doing for all of these companies is we're helping products that help people at scale that are trained on millions of data by first cleaning the data so that they can have better models, whether it's comment rankings or audio assistant models. And this is true for like every major company. And so during my PhD, I realized, holy shit, like this is a big deal because frankly, we now have a technology that can empower pretty much every company that's training an ML model by providing clean data for training so they can train a more accurate model and also by allowing them to do more accurate data analytics and basically just dealing with the misinformation problem that I brought up earlier in, in the conversation. Yeah, thanks for encapsulating how you come up with the idea of doing internship where you can apply your PhD research and from those angle you figure out ways to iterate clean up and apply them for real problems and 
how does that keep your mind? Yes, to support further at the project. And how did that spark your idea of like, maybe this is bigger than you thought? I guess like in addition to your MIT research, so, so we, we touched on GitHub and kind of like what you're doing right now in a bit, but touch on another aspect of your research manifesto, which is USML to augment human learning, especially for social good. I believe that you also briefly spent some time by in Boston as the chief AI scientist at Knowledge AI. And you also have co-founded ChipBrain, which is another company to design empathy AI that empowers people with conversation. Regardless of their background or difference, can you say some of the things that you learned from working on this startup? Yeah, um, for because sure. I, I believe that this is like your first time actually working in startups, right? Before this point, it's been mostly in research or big tech yeah, yeah, I worked a little in industry, worked in academia, worked in startups before... I started working in startups in, I think, 2019 or 2018, I'm not sure, with a, a company. It was just a startup in Boston called Knowledge AI. And it was just my first experience. They just reached out to me, and they and at the time, they was one person, the CEO, and they had one engineer. And they needed a chief scientist to build and understand how to build their AI systems. And so I was a grad student, and they were able to provide some support uh, and also I could help them and I built a few things for their fundamentals, their recommendation engine, and also a learning paradigm that like helped you learn vocabulary and, and for like new students learning new words. I would say that was getting my feet wet more than anything. It wasn't a huge, it showed me how they operate. I met some great people, made some friends. Long term, I was very interested in what they were trying to do, which is use AI to improve education. So I really cared about their mission fundamentally. Um, but I wanted to found my own thing and I wanted to use my PhD research to, to do stuff. It was a different type of startup than what I had been spending a lot of my time getting, building a network and skill set around. And so it was great to learn and <clears throat> to help out some, a mission I care about, but it wasn't my core focus. I eventually founded ChipRain, which was a brilliant vision. It still is a brilliant vision. I think we're a little bit early in the market. I think I made a mistake of founding the company with people who I had not known for very long. Um, and so ultimately, it didn't work out. There were some health issues with some of the co-founders and some stuff that just couldn't work out where I... I didn't see it being long-term viable once I, I learned a little bit about those health issues. And there was just some things that you didn't I didn't know. But the vision was beautiful. And I built the most incredible team of MIT folk, friends, tons of friends of mine were on that team. It was really a beautiful experience. And that was the first time I'd ever founded a company. And so I learned a lot. We did some crowdfunding. So we raised through the crowd, which I'll probably never do ever again. But it was an interesting experience. I learned a lot and I, I was the CTO, not the CEO. So I built the tech and I built the team. And I think we did a great job on the tech and the team. But I think that there were some improvements that could have happened on the business side. And, um, but I think everyone did their best. I think that some of the issues that happened at the end were, un there's nothing that could be done about them, especially with health issues. Like you can only do so much. And so I, I then ended up working along the way, all the while CleanLab had been getting more and more use in the open source. And then we had several companies reach out about acquiring the open source, acquiring my research. 
hiring me as like a whatever position and basically like acquiring clean lab and that gave me a price range i started to realize this thing is worth several tens of millions of dollars we can do something bigger with it and i started to get some of my friends who i had been working with at mit we had been publishing papers using clean lab that were very successful uh, one of them was the best paper nomination at NeurIPS. We were featured in Andrew Ng's a podcast with him, or it was like a, sorry, it was a workshop with him. We showed up in several places in the news for our work using Clean Lab. And I started to realize like uh, Chip Brain was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. But the real opportunity was what I have been working on for 10 years and building, which is my Clean Lab, which is my PhD, which was Clean Lab. And some of my best friends were also working on this with me. And it just started to become really obvious. The market wanted this, the people wanted to buy this. And this was how we could empower AI to actually work on real world data for people. And I had spent so many years building on this thing. It, was, it just became really obvious. So I left ChipBrain. I ended up going full-time as a CEO and co-founder at CleanLab, co-founded with Anish Athalier who is an absolute powerhouse from MIT, has 30,000 plus citation or Google Scholar stars on his projects, which is more than every other company in our space combined, just as one human being, a very impressive individual and one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. And our other co-founder is Jonas Mueller, who again is one of the smartest people I have ever worked with. So these people were not just PhDs from MIT, these are some of the best PhDs I ever met in 10 years at MIT. And I was able to co-found a company to them with them, which I'm grateful for every day. I'm very lucky to have the co-founders I have. It's a really good founding team. And so once we had the team together, it became a very natural transition for me to focus full-time everything I've got into Clean Lab. And it's been going, it's going actually a little better than I expected in terms of the amount of interest and the deals that we're able to start doing. I'm very excited about the future. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the story, guys, of starting the company and learning from the startup journey and how you actually commit into cleanup. Yoshi wrote this blog post about the past, the present, and the future of cleanup on the website, the company, which I'll be sure to link in the show notes, which detail all these different milestones that you and your co-founder had, had gone through. Just like touch on one or two points on that founding journey, you finished your PhD at MIT around summer of 2021, right? And then after that, you commit full-time at CleanLab. And I think there's also another milestone that pretty important that you and Jonas and Anish work on, which is this project called Perversive Label Errors on a website called labelerrors.com, where you talk about People can find millions of label errors in the 10 most commonly used data set in machine learning. And this was featured to a lot of news outlet, which I'm sure like it helped a lot with the PR and the marketing work for cleanup. So can you talk more about that project and how did it end up going to shape the direction of Clean? Yeah, that was Anish's idea. He was like, I, I met up with Anish at Neurips or no, I was at ICML. We were in Sweden in 2018, summer of 2018. And I, at that time, Anish had just won the best paper award at ICML. 
he's very young. I don't know how old he was. He's like 23 or 24 when he did this. Maybe he's like 20. I have no idea, like 23. He's a very special person. And uh, I met with him at ICML. I chatted with him because the paper, his best paper award at ICML was basically what's wrong with GANs and with things that detect adversarial examples. And he showed that those defenses were actually broken. And so he, he became interested from a systematic point of view and a systems point of view. How was ML and AI broken as a field? And I was also at the same time interested in how ML is broken, but I was interested in it from the like data sets being erroneous and how you actually can't train good models because the data is full of errors and it adds a lot of biases to your models. So I, I go to Anish and I say, hey, Anish, did you know that MNIST, the uh, data set created by Jan LeCun, who would eventually after that earn the Nobel Prize, which is called the Turing Award in computer science, that data set created by him actually has errors in it. And the one we've been training on, like 20,000 data sets, also did ImageNet is full of errors and I can detect them. And he was like, interesting. <laughs> That's a pretty cool thing. And so I told him, how about this? If I made a project, if we had a research paper where we could actually show that the top 10 data sets all have label errors and we could show what those label errors are and what the corrected test set should be and show the implications it has on the field of machine learning and that the benchmarks of machine learning are actually broken, would you be interested in working together? And Anish was like, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested in working at that. And then he was a powerhouse. He was so great to work with. So we worked together for about two years on this. We did some workshop papers, et cetera. Eventually, the machine learning side and the implications for machine learning got to a place where I needed some help. And there was no one else I'd rather go to than Jonas Mueller, who was our chief scientist. At the time, Jonas had just graduated from MIT with his PhD in machine learning. He was the smartest person I when I was at MIT in, in machine learning. He always seemed to know what the latest papers were, and I could always rely on him. And so I reached out to him, and I was like, hey, we actually have found that ML's broke at, at scale. It's just broken. Are you interested in getting involved? And he was like, yeah, I'm pretty interested in this. So he starts looking at how we can think about this, and he starts discussing that in the real world, data sets are not like curated benchmark test sets. And what we need to show is we need to show what is the implication of AI and ML in the real world based on our findings in this academic paper. And he helped drive that home in the paper. And his perspective was invaluable in that regard. The output of this was labelairs.com, which is a website where you can check out all the errors for yourself. And Anish Athalia built that website and me and Jonas just gave input, but it's really Anish who created it. And then it's my research that drove it and Jonas that drove it home for the ML community. And the three of us started to realize that together we are a pretty pretty cool trifecta of people in the space. And ultimately, Jonas, at the time he was at Amazon, fun fact, Jonas built, he was the lead developer for a, a long while, for like four years on Autogluon, and in many ways built Autogluon. And that's what SageMaker and AWS run on for all of AutoML. So Jonas Mueller, the guy who built the AutoML for Amazon, he left and joined us as our chief scientist. And both of these guys are some of my best friends who I've known now for a decade. And so it's fantastic to get to 
to start a company with people who I've known so long, I can trust, I can rely on, and who also are two of the people I respect the most in the world because they are <laughs> absolutely stars in their field. Yeah, thanks for telling that story and kind of emphasizing again the importance of the co-founder relationship, like, like knowing these people for such a long time. Like earlier, you talk about what the lesson you learned from Chip Brand, which is like, the, you haven't worked with the co-founder long enough, right? So it's, oh, yeah. it starts like with clean love. Do you have that assurance that the relationship between the co-founder oh, yeah. is strong to make sure that the company can thrive in a meaningful way? Yeah, the biggest takeaway for me, if, a, if you're going to start a company and it's not going to work out, do not make the same mistake again. I mean, there are dollars on the line. There are people's livelihoods on the line. When you hire someone, you're providing their livelihood. They could be doing anything in the world, but they're working on your company. So you got to care about them. You have to take care of them. They're very, you have to decide different companies are different. Like, is your, are your employees your number one priority or is the customer your number one priority? This is a constant battle I have internally. And I, and for me, it's both. But if you look at Facebook, it's always the employees who are the number one priority, not the customer. If you look at Amazon, it's the customers who are the number one employee a number one priority, not the employees. Everybody ends up taking a stance. But for me, I'm just constantly, I want to do both. And when I think about our employees, I care deeply that we provide them like nurturing growth experiences. And when a company fails, that's a disservice to the people who you wanted to provide a livelihood to. So you better not repeat the mistakes that you made. And so the mistake I made at Chip Rain was that I founded the company with people I didn't know well enough. And so I did not repeat that mistake with Clean Lab. These are people I've known for a decade. And the business is like very strong, right? But that doesn't, it's the founders. When you have a seed stage startup or a Series A, a very early stage company, if you don't found with reliable people who you can trust, who you, if anything is going to happen at the founder level, then that, that is the most likely scenario that's going to break up the company. And so it's good. You want to work with people who you can rely on for the next decade, the next 10 decades, so that this thing can run for the long term. Yeah. And we'll talk about company building and culture in a bit, but I want to reserve the next few questions about the technology itself. Just a couple of months ago, your team released CleanUp 2.0, which can help automate a variety of data centric AI workflow from clean learning, fixing label issue, fighting overlapping classes. And getting a single theoretically proven house score to check overall that set quality. Yeah, can you elaborate on some of this benefit with this new version of the open source project, as well as the high level roadmap uh, for the open source version of CleanLab? Yeah, so the old version of CleanLab was focused on just how do we have a few methods that can, in a few lines of code, find label errors in your data. With CleanLab 2.0, what we did was we made it so that more people in the world can contribute to CleanLab by making the code more consistent, a strong documentation that anybody can read and learn from. We took a good algorithm and we surrounded it with a good package so that more people can contribute, so that more developers can grow CleanLab with us, so that we can build a community around CleanLab, and so that we can also add and extend the package to a lot more features and support. The 2.0 was a shift from a grad school package to a community and a framework for the future of data-centric AI. That was the main purpose. Absolutely. And 
excited to see how this new version is going to evolve and more contribution rolling in. Yeah, um, I can share some of the things we're building if it's interesting. For the future, what we're building is out of distribution detection, mm -hmm. outlier detection. These are already in the package, actually. They were just added in the last two weeks, and we'll announce them in a few weeks. We're adding nearest neighbor solutions for all sorts of, of feature-based error detection where you don't have labels. We added multi-annotator. Some of Actually, there is no package right now for multi-annotator support, meaning like how do you find quality labels when you have multiple annotations? But we built this with some fantastic engineers, Huiwen and Oleana, led by Jonas Mueller. And that's a pretty cool subset of the package, actually. I think it's going to be really useful for a lot of people. Going forward, we're adding support eventually for regression. We're adding support when you have all sorts of weird data issues where your labels are less than actually the number of classes that you trained your model on, which happens pretty often. We're adding support for semantic segmentation, for tagging, for NLP tests, for object detection. We got a lot on the roadmap. Yeah, sounds very exciting. Clean Lab Studio is the no-code automatic data correction solution for data and engineering teams with more robust enterprise features. Would you mind highlighting some of these capabilities of Clean Lab Studio? Yeah, for sure. In the open source, what you can do is find issues in your data, but you can't really fix issues in data in with Python. You need an interface. You have to be able to see it. You have to be able to interact with it. You have to be able to touch it. You have to say, this is the group of stuff that's wrong. I want to not train on this. This is the stuff I want to fix. And it's really hard to do that in a, in a command line, like pure open source way. It's just not a very, you can do it, but it's a miserable solution. If you want to do this, you're going to have to build software around it. And building software that works for any data set, which is how CleanLab works, is a pain. So people don't want to build that around it. So we built it for them. And so with open source, you can find issues in data. And with CleanLab Studio, you can actually fix your data set, which is the harder task. And so Studio is a no-code solution. You don't even have to write code. You can, it, this is supported next year, but it, next year we'll have it. So in the open source, you can actually hook directly into CleanLab Studio. That way you can also write code. But for now, you don't even have to write any code. You would just drag and drop a data set or integrate with Databricks um, or just upload a JSON file. And in a single click, it will run for you automatically, find all the issues for you, order your data set for you, and correct your labels and provide you a clean model. You can train a clean model on clean data. And talking about having the interface to facing paper errors, I believe, your team recently released CleanLab VC, which is an interactive visualization of confident learning. Can you touch a bit on this exciting development? Yeah, VC is the playground. Have you ever used like playground for TensorFlow? Have you ever checked that out? I think I come across it, but I... Yeah, like people wonder how does deep learning work? So they created the playground for TensorFlow. People wonder how does confident learning work? The field that we invented at MIT. And CleanLab is built on confident learning. And so people just kept asking, how does this thing work? Most organizations, most businesses are very secretive about how their algorithms work, but we're not. We're from MIT. We have an open source culture. We want to give to the world and we hope that the world will give back to us. Um, along the way, we're providing something that you can't do without using the product. And so 
we're willing to be able to give away a lot because we have a lot to give. And we also have a lot of value through Clean Lab Studio. And people are getting a lot of value from Clean Lab Studio. And so we can afford to release these algorithms. Clean Lab Busy is a way for you to easily understand how those algorithms work. It's an educational platform for you to play around and see how Clean Lab, it's a very simple simplification, but it shows you a simplification of how the Clean Lab Studio works and how confident learning as a field works, like at, at a pretty simple level. For sure. Thanks for going over with all this technology from the open source project to enterprise solution as well as the educational resources. So let's take off your sort of technology hat and put on your CEO hat. Hiring is the critical responsibility of any understood startup founder. What lesson have you learned to attract the right people who align with Clean Labs culture? Yeah, so one thing you learn pretty quickly when you're starting a company, especially like in a, a C a executive role, it's a tech company, it's an AI company, but really what's one of the most important things is actually HR. And I think that's often overlooked. Building a good culture is really important. My friend Cody, who you also interviewed, he always says, and I agree with this, and I have also embody this. I got this from him. He always says that our first product is our culture. And I feel the same way at Clean Lab, that our first product is our culture. We have a really good team. If you go to cleanlab.ai and you look at the team, it's, it is a very good team. About half of us are from MIT. The rest are from Stanford, University of Washington, Cornell, Harvard, UPenn, NYU. It's a very good team. When, when you have a team like that, uh, we're only 15 some people, but we actually interviewed 800 people. That's really unheard of for a seed stage startup. It's because we had a good idea already. We had a good technology. We had a good market fit. We needed to build a good team. And so the thing I just want to emphasize is that not everyone has to do this, but we're not building like an app that just is built on top of Dolly. We're not building like a quick, easy thing where the tech takes a week. We're building a revolutionary new technology that makes AI work on any data set for any model. That's hard. That is a hard thing to do. This isn't like a, a quick thing. This is going to take a very special think tank. And so we had to be really careful about the people that we hired. But we also had to hire good people, moral people, kind people. And, and we did a really good job of that. I'm, that's probably one of the things I'm most proud of that I've been involved in and that we've done as a founding team, me, Anisha, and Jonas. And the team themselves, they've also vetted everybody. We've established a pretty special group of people. And yeah, I would say that was probably one of the hardest things we did and also one of the most important things we did, which is interesting because you think building the business or having the right pricing model or the right sort of marketing team. But we already had a pretty good market fit and we have a pretty good notion of like our pricing model and our business. What we needed is the right people to build something that's going to stand for a while. Just touching on culture fit part of view, you mentioned you want your previous answer. How do you still internally struggle with this different piece of the business? You're talking about how Amazon prioritized customers, Facebook prioritized employees, Google prioritized technology, and given some of your experience, you try to bring some of those into clean lab. Can you talk more about that? 
Yeah. How do you prioritize why? Yeah. So part of the goal of me working at Google and Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Meta, Oculus, the goal of this was to see how everyone works and then incorporate that into Clean Lab. I'll just share an interesting perspective. When you interview with Facebook, the way they let, this is as a researcher, not as like an engineer. I don't know about engineering, but as a researcher, when you interview with Facebook, they work with you and they basically show you, they tell you like, here's a manager. We're going to find you a manager. And then you actually work out the project later. It depends on the group, but that's one of the options. Um, and I, I worked there twice, both at Oculus Research and also at Facebook Ad Research. Both times I did not settle on the project until after I got there. So that's how they handle it, which is interesting. When I was at Amazon, we didn't even set up an, inter an internship until the project was already predetermined and they found a manager to match the project. Also interesting. When I was at Google, the way it worked is they had a team and a product in mind. And what they did is they set up a way where they had someone who was willing to work on your project, but you would hone it down and work out the specifics. But the project was driven by you. So it's more similar to Amazon. And when I was at Microsoft Research, it was entirely free-flowing, where I literally just joined a group generally with the objective of helping people on a particular thing. And I like didn't even know what the project was going to be until I was there for a month. It was like very free-flowing academic. So I share that because my point is that all these companies are so different. So what, I, what we tried to do at Clean Lab is we tried to take the best, the things that we saw that were the most effective and the best for creating a good culture and wrap them into one. And what we do at Clean Lab is we do a lot of work internally to have a really clear idea of what customers want, what users want, and what a roadmap is. And when we're hiring people, we actually, we let them know. We say, hey, this is like what we're trying to build. Like, this is very real. Like, when you come here, we're going to build shit. We're not going to actually hang around a long time. We're moving pretty quickly. And so we jump right in the interviews and tell people, like, literally what the task is going to be. What is the day-to-day -day going to be like? And I think that's been really helpful in finding the right people. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing that perspective. Thinking back about your experience in both academia and uh, in industry, um, what do you see as the differences and similarities between being a researcher and being a founder? Yeah, so you say similarities and differences between a founder and a researcher. Interesting. Yeah, a researcher and a founder both have to have vision. I think they both can be more effective if they're good leaders. There's a big difference between a leader and a manager. A leader is someone who has a vision that they see before anyone else. And their goal is to get everyone else to see their vision with them. And if they have achieved that, they are a good leader. A good manager helps people execute on that vision and to get it done on time. I think a founder needs to be a good leader. They don't necessarily have to be a good manager as long as they hire good managers. But they could be both. A researcher, on the other hand, has to be a leader in their field, but they also have to be a good manager of themselves because they're the one doing the work as well. Whereas a founder hires people to do the work because the founding is the full-time job to interface with external people and investors and communications and customers and building the team, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're operating a company, you're obviously doing a lot of management, but you're the time that you have to contribute yourself on the technical level gets greatly reduced, which is horrible for me because I love writing code, by the way. I love it. <laughs> so I hate that I don't have time to do it. And both of them being a leader is crucial. 
being a good manager is more important in as a researcher in terms of managing your own time and the projects. Being a manager is less crucial as a founder because you can hire managers. You wrote a LinkedIn a couple of months ago about qualities of a good leader, right? Just curiosity, effective communication, and relentless. And I think it, it, it sounds like those are the attributes that make a good leader and separate a leader from a manager. And that's like a somewhat a similarity between both the father and the researcher. Yep, definitely. You cannot be a good researcher if you can't communicate the results that you find. You have to be able to communicate them, whether that's in the form of mathematical syntax or it's in the form of standard English communication. Same way with a founder, you have to be able to communicate to the public what you're building so that they know what value that they can obtain for it and how it can affect and benefit their lives. Yeah, thanks for providing your perspective on the threat of being a researcher and being a father. The remaining few questions, I just want to talk about some of the other fun part of your personal life outside of what you know and professionally. In your spare time, you have researchers build affordable state-of-the-art deep learning machines by doing things like changing a GPU position, changing GPUs, and choosing which part to build. Can you share a bit about this personal hobby? Oh, yeah. I worked in a quantum computing lab, but I was doing machine learning. And so I didn't have like other grad students to tell me, how do you train a bunch of models or to teach me like how to do ML, AI stuff. I had friends though. I had good friends, like I had Jonas and I just asked him like, what do you guys do? And he'd be like, yeah, our group has access to a bunch of GPU rigs and we can just run our experiments on those GPUs. And I was like, oh, okay, that seems pretty important. So we didn't have any of those. And so I, I built them myself. And in the beginning, I had a pretty tight budget. And I was able to build a really powerful machine with very limited funds, like $7,000. And I was able to, it turned out we like, we, we ran the experiments for our first papers on AWS and we spent like $30,000. And so I started to realize, holy crap, are people out there in the world not able to do AI because they can't afford to run AI experiments? Because that's a travesty. Like we shouldn't be preventing the growth of a field of science that benefits humanity simply because people can't afford to run experiments. That's a travesty. And so I started writing blogs, releasing how to build these machines for free. Just, I didn't charge anything. It wasn't a business. I just wanted to help people. So I just wrote this blog. It's called the L7 Learning Blog at l7.curtisnorthcutt.com, where you can just read how to build a GPU rig yourself. And then it got picked up in the news and a bunch of places that were really excited about it. And then we got hundreds of thousands of viewers and you and readers. And uh, I think it benefited a lot of people. And now many of the GPU rigs that have been built at universities across the nation and globally have been copied on that blog, which is exactly what I wanted. So now we've got tons of smart people who are able to do ML research because they now can actually build the machines at an affordable price. And I'm very happy about that. I want as many people to do AI and ML as they want to. And I'm glad to empower them. I think it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a really cool video. You show everything from different parts and how do you actually put that together. And I think hopefully the cost of GPU machines, computing is that will keep decreasing in the future to democratize more accessibility for this field. Now, so... Besides your 
computer science world. He also a rapper by the name of PalmDB, the PhD rapper. And you are known for delivering the landmark song of the MIT Rap Challenge. I believe that you also part a record label company called MPWR Records, based in Boston, that used rap, hip hop, and R&B to empower society. So my question is twofold. First, how have you initially become serious about a rapper career? And secondly, what have you learned from rapping that makes you a better scientist? Interesting, yeah. Um, the first one, so I wouldn't say that as a rapper, it's a career. I would love for it to be, but I, you can't, you realistically can't be the CEO and co-founder of a company that's growing as quickly as Clean Lab and also have a career as a rapper. I think it's funny, like when you hear this, you know, somebody and you're like, oh, we've had this technical conversation, machine learning and ML. You just don't want to take it seriously. I think when it comes to art, it's in our gut. There's something in our soul that wants us to doubt that someone with a background like that could actually be a professional rapper. We can't help ourselves. We want to laugh. We want to doubt. And I'd like to change that. I'd like to see that's actually not the way that people should think about it. I think a lot of the best scientists also can be the best artists. I think we've seen this. Have you ever heard of Leonardo da Vinci? It's a serious failure of society to doubt that someone is capable of doing both. But to do both as careers full time, that's a different question. And I would like to seriously consider full-time being a rapper, but I will not, I am putting that entirely on hold because we have way too much going at Clean Lab. And if one day I, the time comes when I can do it as a career, I, I absolutely will. That day is not today. But I still do make a lot of music and I do release a lot of music and I have literally thousands of songs that I have not released. Let's say 100, at least about two to three hundred could go out you could listen to them and find them reasonable to listen to and i'd say 50 to 60 of them are radio ready like they're produced and ready to go but i've released very few of them because it actually takes a lot of time you got to market it you have to have a proper a manager you need to have a producer you have to make albums there's a lot to do and you have to do concerts it's like a full-time job you asked me how did i start getting into this yeah i i, I grew up with a lot of hardship I had a lot of feelings, didn't know how to express them, but music was therapy. Music was a way that I could expurgate a lot of the pain that I had inside of me. And I could take that pain and I could put it into a song and it wasn't in me anymore. It was inside of that MP3 file. And I found that very empowering to be able to take all of this pain and hardship and put it into a song and not have it inside of me anymore. So a lot of my music was very dark when I was younger. And then as I got older, I started to have other experiences. So then I started to make songs out, <clears throat> out like MIT and music and stuff like this. So eventually I made the MIT song, which was featured in a TED Talk and also featured in the MIT Museum <clears throat> because it was the first song that anybody had ever created that was used at MIT for their ceremony, like for in the commencement. So MIT like played the song, like, for, you know, tens of thousands of people at graduation, which is pretty cool. But yeah, I also did some concerts in India, New York and Mumbai and India and the slums. 
and did a bunch of different work and then founded a record label just because I was doing this independently. So I wasn't signed with anyone. And so it just made sense to do it through a record label. But yeah, short of it is, I would say more than computer science, actually, rap music is something that I enjoy because mm -hmm. it's so human. <clears throat> it's about telling a story and every song is a feeling. And, and I'm pretty damn good at it too. And so it's just something I enjoy. It's like one of the places where I don't have to be so humble. But I, to be honest, like it's a very humbling thing to do. Because if you go out and you ever do like a battle with somebody or you release a track, everyone's listening to you and they're judging you. So it's yeah. actually a massively humbling experience to release a song. But it's also rap music is about being confident about who you are. And so that's why I say it's a place where you can be confident. Whereas science is not an emotional thing. Building a company is not emotional. Building a company and doing science is, it should be dispassionate. You should actually be approaching it entirely from what's right, what's good for my customers, what's the truth that I'm trying to discover as a scientist. But music is different. And so to answer your final question about like, how does rapping help you be a better scientist? I think it's an outlet, right? You have these things, these feelings where you need to be emotional, you need to be a human, you need to be creative. But you don't want that stuff affecting your scientific experiments with bias and a lot of emotion. You want to be dispassionate when you do science. You want to build a business based on facts and truth and what's best for companies. And you can still be super creative and fun and quirky. But realistically, people just want shit that works, that's easy, that's cheap, and that makes them happy. They don't necessarily want to know like your life story and all your pain and struggle. Put that in a song. So I think that it's really helpful for people to have a musical outlet. And if I ever do have the free time, if one day Clean Lab IPOs and my role changes, yeah, I'll consider doing a rap career. Frankly, I know yeah, it's, it makes you want to smile. It's hard to believe. Yeah. But I, I would love it. I think it'd be fantastic. Yeah. Do you have a favorite crop artist? How do you? Oh, yeah, so many. Yeah, there's a lot of really good people. A lot of people are afraid to say Eminem because it's like a standard. Yeah. But you can't avoid that he is like one of the best lyricists of all time. And I grew up listening to his, the Eight Mile soundtrack album. Those are some of the best songs in the world. Yeah. They're incredible. The rap game, Eight Mile, Rabbit Run. The, these are just fantastic songs. Lose Yourself is very famous, but they're really good songs. And they, they show you how a song can encapsulate a feeling and they can encapsulate the pain and struggle of just being a human in a hard world. And I grew up in a a hard environment and it I resonated with it and it brought me peace and it brought me motivation and it brought me strength. And I want to give that to everyone. That's a really cool thing. So, yeah, Eminem is amazing and then some other really good people that you just can't avoid mentioning. There's some modern ones, some of the new folks like Joyner Lucas, it's really good. There's a, I like logic and he's a little different, but I, I think he has some good messages to share. I really like uh, some of the older people who don't get brought up. I always liked Ludacris. A lot of people don't talk about him anymore, but I always thought he was really good. I thought he had a unique flow and impactful flow. And I really like a lot of the gangster rap, actually, because it's cool to listen to a song and feel badass. Who doesn't want to feel that way? No matter where you're from in the world, it's a cool feeling to listen to something and you feel badass. You feel like you're stronger, like you've got thick rhino skin when you listen to that song. And it makes you feel like suddenly after listening to a song, you're a stronger person or you're like more empowered. 
And that's badass. And I think a lot of 50 Cent's music does that. I think a lot of the early days of like Lil Wayne's music and some of the early Drake songs and like some of this more earlier genre. Nowadays, there's not so much of that. It's more a new style, a lot more mumble, you know. But I think there's still a lot of great songs. I think there's a lot of great people and new rappers as well. Most artists I actually have a lot of respect for. There's very few artists I don't respect. So I want to wrap our main conversation on personal note. You shared this message and what LinkedIn Twitter a couple of days ago on celebrating your milestone on research contribution hit a thousand citation. And you talk about like how your success has been due to a function of grit, resourcefulness, and friends met along the way. How do you personally cultivate these tools on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So the question is, how do I use grit, resourcefulness, and friends in order to, just on a day-to-day basis, like for the work I do at Clean Lab? Yeah, that's correct. Oh, yeah, that's okay. You can't run a company from seed up until, let's say you're aiming for, you're you're aiming to be a unicorn, right? So let's say your valuation is going to be a billion. I think that's a limited point of view, but it's a reasonable goal for any startup that wants to grow quickly. You can't do that without grit. (laughs) You're going to have stuff that you encounter. The market is going to change. Your team is going to have a massive change for some reason. Your product, something doesn't work the way you planned, and it's going to be hard, and you're going to fail if you're not gritty. You have to be this immovable force, this, this sort of just impossible, non-stopping momentum that no matter what happens, you will continue to go. No matter how many immovable objects you hit, no matter how many things try to stop you from achieving your goal, you have to be relentless. And the only way you can do that is by being extremely gritty. No matter where you came from, grit can get you to a better place. And I think it's the number one thing. Second is resourcefulness. If you spend all your time doing things the hard way, you're going to run out of time. You need to figure out ways to do things in a quick way using hacks and tricks and being resourceful, being like, oh, actually, I have access to this person. I know this person. I can ask them a question or I can ask them for help. That might save me like a year of work because they introduced me to the right person. Or you find this thing online that introduces you to something else online And if you can just be resourceful and think of all the things that you have and keep track of them in your mind, you have to keep a very organized mind. But if you keep an organized mind and you know all the resources that you have access to, you can tap into them at any given moment. And you can often save years potentially in the building of something. And the last thing is friends made along the way because you just can't do anything alone. You can have a vision alone and that's it. Beyond that, you have to get people on the vision with you. If you want to do something big, something globally changing, It's very difficult to do it alone. There are exceptions. There are rare cases, and those are people who I admire greatly. But even those exceptions, usually somebody was involved. We have to make friends. We cannot live in this planet alone. And it's really important because the people that you make along the way, first of all, they enrich your life. But most importantly, if you're building, for me anyway, the most importantly, if you're building a product for people, you have to know people. You have to understand people. You have to know what they care about, what they're interested in. You have to ask them what they want to be better. You can't assume that you know how someone's going to be better. That's just ridiculous. You have to actually know what they want. What are their goals? How can you help them? And the only way to do that is to make friends. You got to really know people. 
you can send surveys all day and people can tell you from a business perspective, but if you really want to help people, you got to make friends with people. You got to get to know them and they got to share their deepest, darkest fears with you. And once you start to know that from hundreds of people, I think it puts you in a better place to be able to contribute to the world. Yeah, I think that's a very beautiful message that you talk about for for this question. So God is at this point of the chat. I want to close up with some rapid fire segment and you can read quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader AI community whose work you admire. Leslie Pat Cabling. Definitely Jeff Hinton. There's a lot. Jeff Dean. Yeah. Jeff Dean is like probably one of the most productive people. I know he's had some ethical issues come up, but in terms of just productivity, he is a very impressive person. Yeah. Number two, name one book that you recommend for people to cut a bit greedy and resourceful message. There's a book called Play Bigger. It talks about going bigger in terms of what you build, unicorn status. Finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the academic researchers turn all these dish fathers on Twitter. Right. I would, I would tell them to do what they love because everything I said about being gritty and resourceful and making friends is much easier when you love what you do. Yes, I think that's a great way to conclude our interview. So, Curtis, I really enjoy chatting with you today, learning about your bringing in Harrow, Kentucky, how you found the latter education, how you discover the love for competence and math, find a view, various research and leadership of the opportunities done throughout your undergrad, your embarking on a PhD journey at MIT, implementing confident learning algorithms, building the open source project Clean Lab, commercializing the company, building a startup out of it, various technical threats on building the product, finding design partners, building a team, as well as general high-level fun fight related to your outside work, doing music and building GPU machines, as well as writing in general. I think there's a lot of very interesting and, and thought-provoking bit of insights that you share from the way you view the future of machine learning to the way our society can do to empower more underprivileged people. Let will be sure to go to the show notes and definitely hope that people can take advantage and learn more and get inspired to do new things and leverage technology to empower their own communities. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today into the show notes so this is going to take a look and follow up a lot more about some of the recent work being spun out of King Lab in the future. And I'll be sure to you know what we didn't coverage this interview. So yeah, Curtis, really enjoy spending close to two hours today with you and learning about your story. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter and check us out at cleanlab.ai. Wish you guys the best. Thanks. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. 
It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.